0: Here's another inspiring speech, recorded at Communities in Control, Australia's biggest and best annual community sector gathering. It's a great joy and an enormous pleasure to actually be here today and to see you in person. And uh, I am aware of how long these conferences have been going. And if we think today's about big ideas, I don't think there would have been one of those 18 conferences where the people who are attending those didn't think big. Because in a sense, being part of the community sector is always about seeing the big picture, but often acting in a small way and often acting very locally. Um, This morning, I want to firstly say thank you. And I want to acknowledge your contribution to the well-being of Australia and its society. You create it, you shape it, you maintain it. And into the future, you will do the same. Because it is at the community level that nations are shaped not necessarily by their political leaders and not by great organisations, but at the end of the day, it's the way in which people seek to come together to share and to govern each other, and you epitomise that. The second thing is I want to obviously acknowledge um, the country that we're on, the elders both past and present, but this morning we've seen an interesting reflection of a young Aboriginal man, Mitch Tambo, who's using his gifts and talents through music to spread the music, to, spell, to spend the message of love, the voice of change, the voice of Indigenous people. And of course, Jack Charles, um, who's well known to many of us, who had an, as an elder within the community, as he said, a self-proclaimed elder, A a man of uh, respect now, of good repute, is using his talents and skills in a way to actually empower Indigenous people, including those that are in prisons and in other circumstances uh, that are obviously of some distress. And in a sense, both of them reflect what the community is all about. It's about individuals using their community, their their own personalities, their own gifts, their own talents, um, in a way to enhance the community. And today, uh, we should just pause and think about one of the most important um, calls to Australia that we're confronting um, in relation to Indigenous people. And of course, it's the Uluru Statement from the Heart. And in that statement, they have an expression which says that the the problems of the past and of the future are are caught up in this particular expression called the torment of powerlessness. The torment of powerlessness. And if you think about that, what they're saying to us is that we can do all the, all the services we like, we can do all of the supports we like for Indigenous communities and individuals, but unless we fundamentally change the power imbalance that exists, unless we fundamentally allow Indigenous people to have power and control over their own lives and destiny, then nothing will change. And surely that's the clearest call for communities to be in control the very theme of this conference. And as a nation, that's a huge issue, a big issue. And the truth of the matter is, for those of us that have been around the Indigenous space for a long time, it is actually the truth. Unless we in fact change the power imbalances, then very little will be achieved. Are we ready for that? Are we as a nation ready for that? Are we as a community ready for that? And if you want to think big, there is probably no bigger issue that confronts the future of Australia than that issue today. Today's topic is about reform. Um, I noticed a um, a quote from David Crosby, the CEO of Community Council of Australia, when he said, reform does not come to those who wait. He went on to say we must get better at uh, properly promoting our value, the value of the community sector. In a sense... The last 10, 20, 30 years have been nothing but reform in this sector. For those of you that were in VET, we've seen enormous changes where we moved from a few hundred TAFE colleges to over 5,000 registered training organisations. Those in the university sector have seen extraordinary changes, not only related to the way in which they're funded, but the very student makeup, particularly in relation to international students. We've seen enormous reform in the aged care areas over time, and of course, in the disability space, um, the most significant reform, of course, was the NDIS. So, in fact, this is a sector that has had reform happening to it, with it and around it for a long time. But a question for me is which of any of these reforms have actually transformed our nation for the better? Could we seriously sit here as a nation and say that our reforms in relation to vocational education have left us with a more skilled, empowered workforce, a trade workforce, and a better and more sustainable system? Could any of us actually say that our university system today is better, providing greater education and, in fact, taking us down the path of a world-leading educational nation? Could those of us say that the aged care reforms have actually delivered better quality care for older people within those institutions in recent times? And even in UIS, which is a truly remarkable piece of work, we continue to see many problems and issues in relation to those. And so reform, in and of itself is not really the issue. I think the issue today, and there are two I want to confront, is the first is community organisations as agents of transformational change. Not reform, but transformational change in the way we as a society and a community will exist into the future. And the second is the transformational changes that need to take place to the sector itself over time. So I think the agenda is well beyond what reforms we wish to seek but rather whether or not we wish to use the very uh, essence of what being community is to create a new future. In many senses, COVID gives us the platform for doing that. Throughout history, there are only a few things that bring about transformational change in societies. The first are wars, particularly world wars. Following each world war, there have been transformational changes in this nation and many others. Great depressions that affect the whole of the world is another factor that gives rise to change. The third are substantial and catastrophic national disasters. And now, COVID. Many of you will have your own view as to what COVID has done to Australia, but my take on it are four things. The first is that for the first time in about two decades, Australia now understands that governments matter. For so long, we believed that governments didn't matter and the agenda of small governments, less significant governments, was certainly in play. But today we see as a nation, particularly at state level, the way in which state governments have to been able to read and respond to their various communities at a local level, particularly better than the Commonwealth has been able to do so. And the fact that governments do matter is important. And the fact that governments matter in the lives of the most vulnerable is finally once again recognised as centrally important. The second is that the notion of citizenship actually means something. How many of you in the last 14 months have heard yourself being referred to as a consumer, a consumer of health services, a consumer of anything? No, for the first time in decades, Australia has re-embraced the notion that the state and each other owes each other a responsibility because we are part of the collective, we are part of the society, we are part of a citizenship nation. And that's something the community sector has long valued, but in terms of national agendas and others, it has been lost to us. The third third point is really about communities matter. And you've already seen that today in the expressions by by, um, uh, Uncle Jack uh, today about how community matters in his culture and the work that he's doing. But you and I have known that communities matter much more than simply the delivery of services and the supports we give. But suddenly the nation saw it. Older people, people with disabilities, people that were unable to leave their homes. We saw the extraordinary movement of neighbourhoods, of local government, of community organisations, suddenly mattering, not in a tangible way, but in a real and powerful manner. Why was it that we ever thought that communities didn't matter? Why was it that this nation of ours, bright and intelligent though we are, actually thought the communities could be supplanted by something else? And the fourth is this real notion of connectedness, really deep connectedness, connectedness and connectivity. What we've learned, of course, is the ability and the necessity for us to be connected, connected to services, connected to each other, connected via new technology, and to use technology in a way that empowers not simply provides services in many sense we are in a historic moment and the question is whether or not we are brave enough clever enough to grab this moment or will we simply revert back to where we were the general state of play in australia after small recessions is that nothing changes and we revert very quickly to back to where we were Indeed, the signs at the moment are not encouraging. The signs are that many in society want to go back to what we had, to where we were. Well, I don't. I want something better, something that is different. And so do you, because you wouldn't be here if you didn't. And I do think we have the capacity to do that. But we can only have the capacity if we use those four elements, that of government, citizenship, the notion of community and the notion of connectivity to really bring about those changes. Let me just be a really practical one. In my current role, my role is about preventing and responding to the abuse of older people and the abuse of adults with disabilities in New South Wales. So let me just say to you, what is their approach going to be in relation to reducing the abuse of older people? In our society, we know that Australia is ageing and we know that Uh, Victoria and every other state will have an increased level of ageing population. I mean, it will be an older population than traditionally the case. Many more people in their 80s, 90s and even over 100. And what we've learned through COVID, but before that even, was how being connected in the community is critically important to the well-being of older people. Well, what will that look like on the ground? I'm at the pointy end where we're looking at abuse, neglect and exploitation And the greatest uh, level of abuse takes place for older people between the ages of 75 years and 85 years of age, when three things occur, greater frailty, increased dependency, and sometimes a loss of capacity. Well, how do we as a society respond to that? We know for sure it's not through the aged care system. The aged care system is about something very different and yet we have an increasing number of people living next to you, in your neighbourhoods, in your suburbs. So what's the strategy to prevent those people being at risk? Or a much more positive attitude, how do we continue to ensure they are, have a meaningful life and an important and significant life within our society? Do you think that's going to come from government? Well, I don't. Do you think it's going to come from business? Do you think the markets are going to, in fact, respond in some way magically to deal with that? Well, the answer is no. The answer is you, me. Strangely enough, it's churches as well. It's local government organisations. It's all of those sorts of organisations that operate locally, into which the answer is. So what is that plan? How will you do that in your communities? How will you respond? And that's going to be the challenge. So whilst the greatest issue, I think, in terms of social policy is around the change of power imbalance for Indigenous people... The greatest public policy response in relation to the way in which our communities operate is our treatment of older people. It's not surprising therefore that these campaigns of anti-ageism are taking on, the campaigns against loneliness are starting to grow right across Australia, the issue of social isolation is real and has, uh, has a government's attention at the present time, none of which gets solved by the aged care system, but it can be solved by us and you by doing it differently. Let's just move back to the other point that I want to raise, which is transformational change within the sector itself. The history of this sector, it's important to understand where it started. In 1813, the governor of New South Wales invited a group of Christian men, not a particular church, to create a house or a place for single parents, girls or women having children. It wasn't for the poor, it was for middle class Um, members of the colony who were in fact having these children out of wedlock. And that was the beginning of our very first charity, which is the Benevolent Society, which till today is still around, and I was privileged to be on the board of that, 1813. Since then, we've seen one of the most dynamic civil societies in the world. Australia is blessed by one of the most civilly active groups we have. And we've seen it take all iterations, particularly dominated by faith-based organisations in our early history, but growing and growing in terms of a more active civil society more generally. The 1970s saw a flourishing of community activity, but a phenomenon of the 1970s was very few of those movements lasted. They didn't have sustainability. The two that survived were the women's movement, particularly in relation to domestic violence and refuges for for women who were being abused, and legal community centres. And beyond that, not a lot survived. But nevertheless, it was a demonstration of how we can bring the community together. Since that time, we've seen very great changes to the sector brought about by some of the issues I've referred to. From the 1990s, we've seen competition becoming a mantra and a way of operation. We've seen outsourcing of government services. We've seen the marketisation of the human services endeavours. And in many senses, some would say we've seen a loss of voice of the sector... I wouldn't be one of those people. But I would certainly say that the message of community-initiated, community-operated organisations and movements has been less powerful in recent years. And so where to from here? What is the shape of this particular sector going to look like? Now, it's not simply a matter of the reforms that we already know about. I was privileged to be one of the commissioners on the inquiry into um, the contribution of the not-for-profit sector 10 years ago, and many of you in this room were participants in that. And it set out an agenda of reform for the not-for-profit sector. Whether you want to call it that, or the third sector, or the social purpose sector, or whatever other term you want, or the social enterprise sector, doesn't matter to me at all. And there were four or five components, and I won't go through those in detail, other than to say they give us a guidance for the future. Knowledge systems, which tells us about what the size of the sector is, but more importantly, what the impact of the sector is. And since that report, we have seen a very substantial increase in the in trying to understand the genuine impact of the sector. And the point that I would make it is well beyond the services you deliver. The great value of the sector lies in what they call externalities or spillovers. That is, things like social cohesion, the restoring of social trust, social engagement and the reduction of social isolation, or, as we've been talking about, connectedness. Unfortunately, however, we've seen no new information data, surveys being done about the economic and social strengths of the sector, a key recommendation of that report. The second is about clearer governance and accountability within the sector. And indeed, the ACNC, which was headed by Susan Pascoe, who's here today, and I had the privilege to be the first chair, is probably the most significant... Not the only, but almost the only substantial change that's taken place in that regulatory framework. And more needs to be done. We recommended more effective sector development and the creation of intermediaries that could look at different ways of working with the workforce, in working with financing of the sector. And very little of that has occurred to date, but some um, has been occurring. A fourth one, and a critical one, which remains completely undone, is in fact a an increase in the level of social investment within the sector itself. Today, we seem to have governments that are incapable of understanding the notion of social capital. Sure, we understand infrastructure, but social capital comes about through the support, the development, the entrenchment of organisations that work within those social sectors, including organisations such as yourself. There has been some money in Victoria in relation to social enterprise capability bonds. And recently in New South Wales, there has been the establishment of a social sector transformation fund. Yet tragically, in the budget that was delivered last Tuesday, there was no additional support for the charitable or third sector at all. Despite all of the evidence that showed during COVID, it was that sector that stood the test of time, were there with the people, doing what the government wanted, but most importantly, supporting people in the way that they need it. And so that was another one. And the last one was about building new relationships particularly with governments. And so yes of course we understand that there has been substantial changes in those relationships. The development of the NDIS for example is based on a fee-for-service base where the consumer has choice and control and that's a good model. But there are many other areas of activity which don't lend themselves to those models. And in that particular report, we looked at four or five different ways by which governments and the sector should engage with each other. One of those, just one of those, is about a relationship-based model, which is trying to deal with what we call wicked problems. And wicked problems are problems that are entrenched within the community. And in many sense, you never eliminate them, but you reduce them. And they don't require government funding in the way we operate today, through contracts, rather a very different form of relationship building. In many senses, we have seen some of that in some of the states, um, but it's been short-lived. In Western Australia, there was a very strong move to change the way in which funding would occur following that report. And there certainly have been attempts in other states, including Victoria, um, to look at a different way of funding. And in some states, we have seen different arrangements put in place in relation to certain types of services. But fundamentally, the pathway for reform of the sector is clear Indeed, there was a a Zoom conference that looked at those particular recommendations 10 years on, and that was held, um, I think, late last year or early this year. But do they really go far enough when we're talking about the sorts of issues we are here today? Do they really go to actually the transformational agenda that I think is needed and is capable of being delivered? So let's just very briefly look at some of those barriers to it. What is the barrier to us embracing transformation at the moment? The first, at the political level, is the inability to believe that the community will accept big ideas. We seem to be beset by a political culture that's been embedded now for at least 10, 15, maybe 20 years, where they no longer believe it is possible to sell to the community big ideas and big reforms. And the Commonwealth is littered with public servants, advisory bodies and politicians who no longer believe that it is possible to achieve substantial transformational reform. Are they right? Have Australians given up on the big ideas? Have Australians given up on the capacity to embrace reform? If they're right, we simply live in the mediocrity of incremental reforms and very small ones at that. Many of us in the room for a while gave in. We said, OK, it's not possible to achieve big ideas. What we have to live with is reform by this process called incrementalism. But, you know, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy if we do that. All we achieve are small things, and half of those get wound out later on anyway. So have we been selling ourselves short? And more importantly, are we selling the Australian people short? Because right at the moment, to get substantial reform through is very difficult. Reform is not just about more money, it's very pleasing in the budget there was more money for the aged care system, increasingly important that NDIS is being supported to the level that is necessary and they're welcome. But are they reforms? Are they transformational? Well perhaps they may be, but it's not simply about more money. The second is a market ideology, and I'm not an opponent of markets nor competition. I wouldn't have been with the Productivity Commission for 10 years had I been, except to say that what we have to understand, it's simply not about opening markets to any players. Rather we have to be very conscious about who's actually delivering it. And I'm very clear now in my mind that in the human services areas, markets should not be dominated by for-profit operations. They absolutely should be in the market. They absolutely have a role, and many of them are outstanding performers. But what not-for-profit organisations gives to society is so much more, so much more valuable, and yet it is not acknowledged. All governments say we are neutral as to who provides the services. Let the market decide. Our funding is neutral. We don't care whether it's for-profit or not-for-profit or any variation of that. And I'm now convinced beyond a shadow of doubt that's not right, that we need in the human services area to be concerned about who delivers and how they deliver, as well as the funding models. Now, again, I want to be clear, this is not an attack on the for-profit sector, but what it is saying is it's time to recognise that in the not-for-profit space, there is an additional contribution to the well-being of society that needs to be acknowledged. And there is a reason why not-for-profits and for-profits operate differently within marketplaces and human services areas. And those differences are important to understand. A third is our obsession with a focus on services. And I go to the point that I made in relation to elder abuse. It is about getting good quality services to older people, good quality home care, good quality access to social supports, good quality access to aged care. But at the end of the day, the very things that maintain the well-being of older people in their own homes and in their own environments are those issues of social connectedness. And if you want to call them a service, fine, but they're not really. They're something very different. And they need to be constructed and funded in a different way. And it is pleasing in the Royal Commission's report on aged care that they acknowledge a particular way by which social supports should be delivered. Um, In the NDIS there was also an acknowledgement of how that piece uh, should be rolled out. Uh, Tragically that has not worked well and the NDIS system in relation to social supports is well short of what people with disability both deserve and desire and well short of what a competence scheme should be able to deliver. A fourth is big is better. Now, let's understand that there will be a greater mergers of of organisations in the human services areas, health, aged care, early childhood development, um, disability. You will see the emergence of very large players, and that's already occurring. Um, Indeed, it's inevitable that it will occur. But what's been very clear, including by the findings in the Aged Care Royal Commission, is size doesn't mean better. And in fact, the Commission, um, in the Aged Care Royal Commission, explicitly said that the poorer performers were the larger agencies, the bigger homes. Now, again, let's not rush to say that means we shouldn't have big players. But it means to say that that is where we will head. But that doesn't mean, however, that there's no role for smaller organisations to play more boutique roles, to be actually offering particular types of services, both on a subcontract and other basis to larger organisations. But it would be fatal. It would be fatal to those human service markets if they are dominated almost exclusively by large for-profits or not-for-profit organisations. They have a role, they will be with us, and many of them are very good operators, But we do need to be very cautious about this notion that big is better. Big is the only way that you achieve efficiencies. That is not true. And it's a falsehood that is being propagated by far too many people who should know better. The last point is our fear of innovation and funding that innovation. For some reason, we know that in business and every other part of life, failure is part of success. It's almost a prerequisite. Trying things that don't work is important. Um, The fellow that made the Dyson um, vacuum cleaner, he said what people don't understand is the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of prototypes that failed. Everyone looks at the vacuum and says it's a great success. He said if I didn't fail hundreds of times, you wouldn't have the success. We get to social services and we take this sort of risk-averse approach as though innovation is somehow dangerous, that somehow the sector is less accountable than business, for God's sake. What a shocking thought that is. It's not true. And yet we have very little funding left in the sector for innovation. So we seek it through, you know, impact investing bonds or we seek it through new activist philanthropy or we seek it through the community support. But why is it, as a nation, we're reluctant to fund innovation in this sector with the risk that it may not work? And we have to find that new energy, that new capacity to accept risk. And the sector itself has to do the same. The boards of the not-for-profit organisations have become more risk-adverse in recent times than previously. The heads of philanthropy in Australia are less risk-adverse than they once were. Not all of them and not all boards. That can't be right. It can't be that we're becoming more and more conservative at the very time that we need greater and greater innovation, creativity in order to have transformational change. And our voice needs to be part of that, encouraging people. Not reckless spending, not unaccountable spending, of course not, but in fact innovative spending. And there is one, I think, in the the sector itself, um, or two perhaps, but one in particular, one is the decline in the ability of the sector to work with each other. There's a high level of individualism crept into the not-for-profit sector in recent years, largely born out of competition and market-based principles. And so many of the sector want to do it themselves. They don't see the value in peak bodies. They don't see the value as in collaboration. And my view is it's collaboration that has actually made the Australian civil society so strong. It's the very essence of it. Now, you can be a competitor for funding, but still be collaborative in terms of best practice, in working together to achieve the aims and objectives of low-income or socially disadvantaged people in your own community. We can do that. And yet some of the sector bought this nonsense. I think I've given a speech that the sector was uh, uh, thought they were buying a pup and they got a mongrel. In other words, they listened to people that told them, you can't collaborate. Oh, commercially in confidence, you can't collaborate. We can't talk to you about this. One government agency at the Commonwealth level actually said, we can't share best practice, we can't share best practice with the providers because that's a breach of commercial in practice. This was a program to get the unemployed back to work. And I said to the person, you can't be serious. You can't be serious that a Commonwealth funded program to get people back into employment won't share good practice, best practice, with the very people that you're funding because of some commercial confidence. It was nonsense, is nonsense, complete rubbish. And yet people in the sector buy it. Why do you buy it? Because the government tells you? Well, I work for government. Let me tell you, I wouldn't buy it. Um, And you shouldn't. But it also feeds into something that's happening in the sector itself. Very strong entrepreneurs um, particularly, you know, who see their organisation as being a standalone excellent service. And they are excellent services. Social enterprises, as I say, whatever you want to call them, um, they have, in fact, given great strength and depth to this sector. But my view is it needs to come together. Otherwise, I think that some of our area will affect... Uh, some of our strengths will be lost. But overarching all of that, what is the sector really about? It's the restoration of societal trust. Societal trust is the trust that you have in the unencountered institution. That is, it is not in the institution that you deal with and you trust them because you deal with them. It's the unencountered institution. It's the government enterprises. It's the political uh, framework. It's religious bodies. It's government agencies. It's all of those groups. And in Australia, like in so many other parts of the world, societal trust in our institutions has crushed or crashed And there's lots of reasons for that. Yet I make the point that in COVID it reversed. This nation accepted government, believed in our political leaders. And so again, are we really as distrustful of each other and our institutions as we think we may have become? My point going forward is the community sector is all about that. It's all about developing societal trust. And of course... As Jack was talking this morning and others will talk about it later in the day, it's about respect, respect of institutions and respect of each other. I think Hugh McKay is going to talk about the notion of kindness. Others will talk about compassion. Some will talk about care. At the end of the day, they all have one foundation and that is human dignity and that's expressed in respect. So let me conclude by just going back to where I started with elder abuse because that's the business I'm in at the moment. The difficult and challenging part, and in my area, the vast majority of those that offend are not institutions, because I don't look at that, Um, it's family members. So the vast majority of older people are abused by their adult children, and the vast majority of adult people with disabilities are abused by their parents. And so we're in the world of relationships that have gone bad. But as a society, how do we address that? So what sort of organisations will we have to create to respond to that? Or do we already have them? How does the voice of older people inform those organisations, both their management and the way they operate? We talk about in government co-design. We don't see it very often, but we talk about it a lot. Well, what about you? Who do you use to co-design your organisations? How do we leverage off the multiple groups that are involved in this space? The world of the older person has lots of people in their space, particularly at local level. But how does that come together in a meaningful, coherent way that makes sense in the lives of older people? What's the role of local government? I'm a big believer in local government. Um, Not necessarily in the developments that they approve, but I'm a big believer in local government. Because they have a capacity to do something that state and and Commonwealth governments can never do it's to mobilise the local people and in New South Wales we have 17 elder abuse collaboratives and those collaboratives are supported by my office but in every one of those there is the local government, the local health, the local police, it's the old fashioned notion of interagency just retitled um, as you have to do always in this sector. And the last one is what is technology going to do for older people? And here is a really significant issue which the sector has to embrace. It's the good use, the adaptive use of technology as an instrument of protection for vulnerable people. And I don't pretend to understand or to how far we can go with that. But we did see through COVID that that becomes an important arm. It all fits into a broader public policy agenda, which you'll see in the next five years, which will be the largest public policy agenda going forward, and that is the safeguarding, of adults, safeguarding of vulnerable adults and this has been sparked by an ongoing acknowledgement of the level of elder abuse, uh, Commonwealth Government says 5% of all older people in Australia are abused each year, that's 192,000, quick maths, um, but it's actually come about from the death of Anne-Marie Smith in Adelaide, Anne-Marie Smith was an NDIS recipient, unusual that she had some wealth um, and she was uh, well connected. Uh, She died a tragic death, and as you know, the carer has been charged. But when you actually look at the systemic issues, the challenge for all of the governments has been why was she allowed to die in such circumstances? In recent years, I've never seen a single case have such a dramatic impact on the thinking of state and Commonwealth governments. But it only has that because there's an undercurrent that we now need to work to creating a safeguarding regime for vulnerable adults, and you're part of that. How will you respond to that agenda? And those are the sorts of issues that I think confront you. So let me conclude by saying that this sector is strong, it is robust, it is innovative, it is passionate, it is committed, and more often than not, it's compassionate. But it has to re-articulate the value that it has to society in every forum. And governments and other leaders of our community have to re-appreciate those importance. It's not about saying we're better than anybody else. It's not about saying business is bad. It's not about saying governments have lost the plot. But it is to actually say that this particular sector, community community engagement, community activism, if you want, has a real and legitimate role in the future of shaping Australia. COVID proved it. COVID proved it. So we don't need the evidence. We have it. The question is whether we have the will to do it. Some say it's already lost. Some say the will for transformational reform throughout our society is lost. I say not so. Never say not so, because this is, an, this is an agenda that looks for opportunities, and I think there is one at the moment. So, again, I start I go back to where I started to say thank you. Thank you for everything you do. Um, thank you for everything you do in shaping a better Australia, and uh, may we do a better job into the future. Thanks very much. We hope you've enjoyed this highlight from the Communities in Control Library. If you did, we'd love you to rate or review this podcast in the iTunes Store and for you to share it with your friends. For further information about Communities in Control, visit ourcommunity.com.au forward slash CIC.